Well, good morning and welcome to Solid Rock. If you're visiting, we're happy to have you with us today and you have joined us for the last week of our series that we have been calling The Beauty of the Sabbath, during which we have explored the wonderful gift of rest. And our hope is that this would not be the conclusion of this conversation, but just the beginning of a journey um, through which we discover uh, the beauty of rest. Um, I hope that conversations continue for each of you. I, I mentioned earlier in this series that because of the nature of my job, I don't work a typical Monday through Friday work week. Um, and although Monday is not the beginning of the work week for me, often on Monday morning I get a little earworm. You know an earworm, that song that just plays repeatedly in your head and you can't do anything to get rid of it. I often on Monday morning get the Elvis Costello's hit song, Welcome to the Workin' Week, stuck in my head. Welcome to the Workin' Week. Oh, I know it don't thrill you. I hope it don't kill you. <laughs> Have you ever felt like that about your job? You got to do it till you're through it, so you better get to it. <laughs> I could just keep going. Because tomorrow morning... It is going to be there, at least until dinner time. But I do think at times work can become just that thing that we have to do in order to put food on the table. We don't enjoy it. It isn't life-giving, but it's a part of living in a broken world, and so we better get to it, as Costello said. And I get that there's a difference between a job and sort of a, a calling or a vocation. There's a difference between that and just a job that is a job. Sometimes, in certain seasons, we may have to be content with just a job. I have had those jobs. I've been in those seasons. By the way, this is not currently one of those jobs, in, in case you were wondering. But, but I've had those jobs that I didn't enjoy at all but I had to get up every day and go to work because I had bills to pay. At times, that's what necess is necessary. I get it. But generally speaking, work is not just an unpleasant part of our existence that is a result of the fall or the result of sin in some sense. Work is not just something that we do so that we can eventually get a one- to two-week vacation every year. Work is a part of what we have been created to do. As Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel once said, just as we are commanded to Sabbath, we are commanded to labor. So one thing we hope to have avoided throughout this series is painting a picture that portrays time away from work or time disengaged from work as the highest calling. That all we're intended to do is rest. I don't think that's the case. The idea that work is somehow the territory of the devil. Maybe your job is, but maybe that's just this season. Work is a price that we pay as human beings so that we can get to that vacation. And I think a lot of times that's the habit of mind that we slip into. And maybe because we have become so exhausted from a lack of proper rest, our perception of our work or the way we view our vocation or our job sort of morphs into an unhealthy vision and maybe it morphs into sort of the plight of Sisyphus 
Are you familiar with Sisyphus from Greek mythology? In Greek mythology, there is a figure. He was a king, and his punishment for his deceit in this life was to push a giant boulder up a hill, um, and it's an eternal punishment. And every time he gets the boulder to the top of the hill, what happens? It rolls right back down. And so this cycle continues up the hill, it rolls back down. He pushes it up once again, and he does this forever. Maybe some of you are thinking, yes. Finally, I have some words to describe my job. That is literally what I feel like every week when I go to work. On Friday, it's as though I have made it to the top of the hill pushing the boulder, but sometime between Friday afternoon and Monday morning, the, the boulder has made its descent to the bottom, and then Monday morning, I begin that cycle all over again. Hopefully, though, that is not how we view our jobs or our vocation in general, because that is a miserable way to live. And Sabbath, for followers of Jesus, isn't just a time to escape the dreaded work week. That's not what it's about. It's, it's not about this 24-hour period where we can escape so TGIF, or as I heard this week, TGIBF, thank God it's Black Friday, which is not my feeling about that. But, but I think viewing work as the enemy, or viewing it as the thing that we are finally trying to escape, or the result of brokenness, I don't think that's really a Christian view of work in general. Hard work is not something to avoid. Even working to the point of exhaustion is not in and of itself a bad thing. Hard work won't kill us, and not only will hard work not kill us, but it is a part of what we have been created to do. As Tim Keller has said, the book of Genesis leaves us with a striking truth, and this is it. Work was a part of paradise. Now, this is an idea that maybe some are uncomfortable with, but work is not the enemy. Work is not something that we are trying to escape through Sabbath rest. Rather, what we are trying to escape or resist are unhealthy patterns or unhealthy views of our work. So let's return briefly to that creation story at the beginning of the book of Genesis. We touched on this story during the first week of this series, but it becomes important again here. So near the end of Genesis chapter 1, we see humanity created in the image of God and then given this vocation in verse 28. It says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now keep in mind, in the story that's taking place in Genesis 1, this all precedes the fall. This is all before the shalom or the peace of creation is fractured. And what do we see? We see that vocation, work, is a part of paradise. Work is a part of what we as human beings have been created to do. Now, that does shift in a lot of ways because of the sin that we are entangled in. As Miroslav Volf contends, now through their work, human beings contribute in their modest and broken way to God's 
new creation. So what we are doing when we work now has shifted a little bit. Now, as an aside, I, I think this potentially affects how we view the afterlife. Maybe the afterlife won't be free of work after all, because work was a part of paradise. Maybe we aren't trying to escape the physical world or all of the realities of this world after all, because maybe renewal and restoration of this world does not necessarily mean outright replacement with something that is entirely unlike what we know now of the world. That's another conversation that we'll save for another day, though. But I think often, perhaps because of a misinformed sort of Gnostic eschatology or a Gnostic view of the end times, the end of this world, the, the idea that this world and everything in it is evil, I think a lot of times because of that view, our work can become just another sedative or another drug that we use in order to escape some of the awful realities of living life in a broken world. But we have to come back to the idea that work is not the enemy. It is obviously important and good and a part of what we as human beings have been created to do. However, we also recognize that sin does change our relationship to our work. In his book, The Sabbath, Abraham Joshua Heschel gets at this idea in this way. He writes this. How proud we often are of our victories in the war with nature. Proud of the multitude of instruments we have succeeded in inventing, of the abundance of commodities we have been able to produce. Yet our victories have come to resemble defeats. In spite of our triumphs, we have fallen victims to the work of our hands. It is as if the forces we had conquered have conquered us. Our relationship to our work is changed by sin because our relationship to our world is changed by sin. And I think, first of all, our relationship to our work is impacted in a negative way at a personal level in an all too familiar way as one of the great and long-lasting predicaments we find ourselves in as the human race is our proclivity for idolatry. And with work, with our jobs, like everything else in our lives, we have a tendency to take what is good, one thing that we're supposed to do, but to elevate that to a place of supremacy or a place of preeminence and begin to view that thing as the sole reason for our existence. It becomes the dominant, or maybe in practice, it becomes the only reason we exist. So in relation to our work, I think we often forget that the reason we're, we were created in the first place is to be and enjoy God's presence, first and foremost, rather than to accomplish anything. Israel is reminded of this time and time again after the wilderness wandering is the law, before they are entering into the promised land as the law is reviewed and then renewed, they are reminded of the centrality of Sabbath rest to their identity. Why? Because the pull of idolatry is strong. The pull into idolatrous patterns is strong. And 
that pull was going to be even stronger as things begin to go well for them. As they enter into a place of permanence and they have land and begin to have this sense of security, that pull towards idolatry just gets stronger and stronger and stronger. As Walter Brueggemann said in his book, Sabbath as Resistance, prosperity breeds amnesia. When Israel enters into the promised land and things begin to go well, well, it's going to be very tempting to forget where their primary devotion lies. It's easy to forget when things begin to go well, and the people needed to be reminded time and time again of that insidious threat of idolatrous patterns. So first of all, sin affects our relationship to our work in that we often take what is created for our good and elevate it to a place of supremacy. But secondly, sin changes our relationship to our work in that it often causes us, even if we don't recognize it or don't want to admit it, but it often causes us, I think, to frame our work in relation to the coercion of others or comparison to others. So we begin to use our jobs or the source of our income as just another tool to get ahead of or to dominate others. Our jobs become just a means so that we can pad our checkbook a little bit and so that we can at least try to keep up with the Joneses. Not the Joneses that are with us, you know, the proverbial Joneses. I don't want to call them out or anything. But our work does becomes just a means of acquiring more a lot of times so that we can keep up. And if those habits remain unchecked, our relationships with others will suffer. But our relationship to creation itself, to the natural world, will also suffer. Because creation, too, will become just another resource that I can exploit in my pursuit of personal fulfillment. So in light of all of that, in light of these struggles that Israel was sure to face, Sabbath was an integral part of their identity, and it would help Israel as a nation and as a people resist that pull. Sabbath was a reminder that their work was intended to help make the world whole rather than further fragment the world and break it into more pieces. And the tragic thing with Israel is that Israel as a nation knew firsthand just how devastating an idolatrous vision of work could become. Remember, they had just left life from slavery in Egypt. And back in Egypt, it was their ability to produce. And thus, Egypt's ability to accumulate, acquire, and hoard. But it was Israel's ability to produce that was very much tied to their identity. As Brueggemann notes, in Egypt, the Israelites and their work of brick building became their sole purpose of existence in that system. There were ever-increasing quotas for production of bricks that had to be met, and their value as individuals and as a people was seen in their ability to meet those quotas and to help Egypt acquire and hoard. And one of the truths we find throughout the book of Exodus is the fact that that is a destructive vision of work. We don't have time this morning, but if you read through Exodus chapter 5, 
you begin to discover just how ingrained some of this was in their thinking. Israel had been exploited through these practices, and as a result, I think it had trained them to begin to view work in that way. So when they finally escaped slavery, their minds and their habits had likely been formed by their time in Egypt, which is a part of the reason that this command to Sabbath was so important in their new way of life because it would help them break down those habits of thinking. It would help pull them out of those habits and remind them that there was more to life than acquiring. There is more to life than the work that they did and what they could produce. Work, while good and while a part of what we do as humans, is not everything. And it's not everything for you. Your identity and my identity is not found in what we do for work. It's a part of who we are, but it is not our identity. And when work and identity are married and inseparable, our framework for understanding our work in the first place becomes detrimental not only to our health, but detrimental to the health of others as well. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 21, we we read this earlier in the series, but I want to return to it here. The instruction is this, six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest, you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest, you shall rest. There, There is an intricate link between rest And work. One is not somehow holier than the other, but rest is to be built into the fabric of life, all of life, not just down seasons. In the busiest time of the year for the Israelites, plowing and harvest, they were still instructed to stop once a week to rest the busiest time of their year. They had to participate in the systems of creation. As humans, they had to work. They had to engage in commerce, and so do we. They had to sow, and they had to reap, but they also had to rest. Even when the busyness of harvest season would make it tempting for them to put rest off. I recently read an article in a Christian publication that at least implicitly suggested that balance is not really that important in our lives. It's not really that necessary because we have to understand that life is just made up of various seasons. And so if we find ourselves in a really busy season, we just need to accept that because soon enough it's going to end. And I think that approach is problematic. I think it's a problem for at least a couple of reasons, but with that allowance, I think it can become just another excuse for never-ending work and for constant busyness. This is just a season where I can't rest, you know, and to quote the birds who were quoting Ecclesiastes, there's a season for everything. Turn, turn, turn. So my task is just to come to terms with the fact that This season might be busy, and 
I will rest when it is over. The problem is, if I take on this mindset where I have to work 70 to 80 hours a week until this project is done, or I have to burn the candle at both ends until this event wraps up, this is a season where I can't rest. The problem is that inevitably, as soon as that busy season concludes, what happens? Another stressful, busy season begins where all of my time is going to be required. It's going to require all of my undivided attention. And so I'm just going to continue to put rest off until that season ends. And what happens? Well, another busy season begins. And if we haven't built balance and rest into our lives as a non-negotiable, when something comes up on my day of rest that is clamoring for my attention, I can just pull that season card out of my back pocket because this is just a season. It's going to end soon enough, and I never have to face my own dire need for inactivity. Do you remember that story that's told in Exodus chapter 16. So we're backing up a little bit. This is during Israel's wilderness wanderings, and they've escaped Egyptian slavery, and the people start to get upset with Moses. Start to ask, well, why did you even bring us out here in the first place? It, it probably would have been just as well for us if we had stayed back in Egypt, even if we had died, because we're going to die out here, we're going to starve to death. At least back in Egypt, we could sit by the meat pots and stuff our bellies with bread. But now we are going to die in the desert. And God hears their complaints and responds to their situation in this way in chapter 16, verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Verse 5, on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So God promises, look, I'm going to provide fresh bread from heaven. It will be provided for you every day, and you will go out and gather it every day but they are only to take what they need for that day. Again, this habit that is going to help them resist that pull towards hoarding and accumulation. If they try to hoard the bread that they gather on that day, some of those habits that were ingrained into their brains, what would happen with that hoarded bread? Well, it would spoil. Now, this raises the question, well, what about the Sabbath day? We're only supposed to gather enough for the day that we are living right now, but we're also not supposed to work or go out and gather food on the Sabbath day. Well, we read it there in verse 5. On the sixth day, just before the Sabbath, what they bring in would be twice as much as their daily collection so that they don't have to gather on their day of rest. So this is a part of God's provision. He would provide what they need for that Sabbath day of rest, but I think there is a very simple lesson to consider in this detail of the story, and that is the fact that their needs didn't disappear on the Sabbath, and neither will yours. The Israelites were still going to be hungry on the Sabbath, 
They were still very much living on a daily subsistence lifestyle, so what are they supposed to do? Well, these habits of rest were so important in this new vision of life for Israel that God makes this provision to allow them to take in double on the sixth day so that they could, in fact, rest. Because life didn't stop on the seventh day. And similarly for us, life doesn't stop on our Sabbath. We still have to eat. We still have very basic needs that have to be met. So what do we do? This raises questions like, well, can we cook on the Sabbath? Can we go grocery shopping, shopping on our day of rest? Can we go out to eat? And rather than suggesting that I have an answer to each of those questions for all of us, one thing I do want to suggest, with our needs in mind, needs that simply don't disappear on our day of rest, if I am going to legitimately unplug from the tasks that define the rest of my week, I am going to have to make appropriate plans. It's not going to happen. Sabbath rest is not going to happen if I think about rest for the first time that week, the morning that I am intended to rest. It's not going to happen if that's the first time we think about it. And so the day before my day of rest, I may have to work longer. And I may have to work harder so that I can ensure that some of the critical work-related tasks are completed so I don't have that hanging over my head. I may need to, the day before my day of rest, I may need to work to the point of exhaustion because I have to make preparations for the following day that make rest possible. So our goal is to build some of these habits and practices into our lives that make Sabbath rest possible. In a world that, that operates at warp speed, in cities around the Western world that never sleep, rest is never going to occur accidentally. It won't happen. Proper Sabbath rest takes planning and it takes intentionality. So that's the first practical consideration I want to wade into today. The next one, as we begin to wrap this series up, is a much bigger question. And it is, well, what constitutes Sabbath rest for us? What types of activities are prohibited? What types of activity, activities are permitted? This was a big question that Jews in the first century devoted a great deal of time and energy to trying to answer. There were intense debates surrounding these questions, a lot of sparring back and forth to try to figure out what activities were acceptable and then hold people accountable for those standards. We saw a couple of examples of that last week in the life of Jesus. But first century rabbis worked very hard to try to establish reliable parameters that worked and were at least going to help address the new situation of Israel. So in the first century, they were hundreds of years removed from the initial command to Sabbath, and life, of course, had changed quite a bit. And so some of the standards for Sabbath rest needed to change as well. So in the first century, rabbis developed this list of 39 activities, categories of types of activities that were prohibited on the Sabbath day of rest. It included things like kneading dough or 
baking bread or slaughtering animals, traveling, earning money, weaving. I don't know many of us that are going to have trouble with that one. Or strenuous physical activity, planting, harvesting, lighting a fire, or or a really strange one, cutting your fingernails, a prohibited activity, writing more than one letter of the alphabet, putting out a lamp, or maybe my favorite on that list, one that I do think should be carried over, worrying, an activity that is prohibited on the Sabbath. And while a lot of those are irrelevant for many of us today, our task is very similar. Asking the question, well, what is genuine rest going to look like for us? And I think at least beginning to get at an answer is found in the words of Jesus when he said, well, which is lawful to do on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to do good or is it lawful to do evil? Lawful to save life or to kill? And I think as we begin the, the process of figuring out what activities are going to be acceptable for us and our families or our group of friends is asking the question, well, are we being restored by these activities? Are we being restored physically, mentally, spiritually? Is our sense of vocation being restored? After our day of rest, are we energized to once again face the work week knowing that this is what we have been called to do for this season? Are our neighbors being restored? Is creation being restored through my Sabbath practice? And so perhaps for us, what is more important than a detailed list of do's and don'ts that applies for all of us, maybe we begin by simply trying to understand the reason we rest so that we can then individually determine what is helping each of us enter into that type of rest. A pastor in New York, Rich Velotis, has argued this, and it was helpful for me, and maybe it will be for you. He said, Sabbath keeping is not about being more efficient or productive, though that may be a byproduct. It's about resisting the idols of efficiency and production. Sabbath reminds us that we are more than what we produce. Our relationship with other people Our relationship with the natural world is not about us getting the most we can with the least personal investment or cost. It is about us working towards and working in line with the restoration that Jesus is bringing about. And I think Sabbath rest helps keep that framework intact. So as we begin to wrap this up, I want us us to return to an idea that we started with. And to do that, I want to read something that Wendell Berry wrote. He said this, To rest, go to the woods, where what is made is made without your thought or work. And perhaps for us, this is one of the best places to begin. Back in creation, where it all started, where we started this series, where our life with God is at its most primal. Ellie and Audra and Olivia, if you all want to come up as we prepare to take communion this morning. And as we prepare to celebrate the Eucharist, I I want to take us back to that image that we started with today, that image of Sisyphus pushing that boulder up the hill. 
eternal punishment of meaningless, never-ending work, Velotis connected that idea of Sisyphus to Sabbath-keeping, and he said this. He said, Sabbath is a reminder to the Sisyphus inside of us that although our work is never done, we can, by the grace of God, be done with our work. Our work is never done, but Sabbath reminds us that we can, by the grace of God, be done with our work today, and that is our prayer for you. Would you stand this morning? So this is our prayer. Again, I'm hoping and praying that this is not the end of this conversation, but rather the beginning of a lifelong journey where each of us individually and in our families and our groups of friends, that we commit to the hard, long task of figuring out what genuine rest is going to look like in each of our lives. And then we build those habits and practices into our life that make that a possibility. So my prayer for you is that you might be able to enter into the rest of Christ. To experience the presence of God in an undistracted way every week during a time that has been set aside for those purposes. To be reminded what this life is about. It's not about accumulation. To be reminded of appropriate ways to engage with others, to engage and interact with yourself and the world around you. Amen. Let's say a prayer as we prepare to come to the table. And if you are visiting or new with us, we invite you into this time of celebration as we gather around the body and blood of Christ, as we find rest in Jesus. Let's pray. O God of the Sabbath, we often work too much. We recognize that work is good that work is necessary. We thank you for it. We thank you for the jobs that we have. But we also recognize and understand our need to rest and re relax, to spend time enjoying your creation, to spend time with those we have relationships with, and to enjoy you. So we pray, remind us O oh God, of the importance of rest. Remind us of the importance of rest. And give us the courage to resist the pull of idolatry, to resist the pull that is clamoring for our attention, saying that we have to work every waking hour. We need your grace for this task. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Would you join us at the table this morning as we find rest in Christ?